Father's Day, 2nd of September, 1984. A swap meet at the Viking Tavern Mill, Perra, Sydney, has been organised by the British Motorcycle Club. It was to be a family day where enthusiasts would meet, talk motorcycles, buy and sell parts, enjoy a few beers and a pig on a spit. At the end of the day, there would be seven dead and 28 wounded. The fight between the Comanchero and Bandito motorcycle clubs would be the worst bikey-on-bikey violence the world had ever seen. So how did this happen? This is the story of the Milpera Massacre. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So, before we get into the events of that Father's Day 1984, I'll need to tell you a little bit about the history of the two clubs involved. So, in the mid-60s, William George Ross, or Jock as he would be known, founded a motorcycle club and chose the name Comancheros after a 1961 John Wayne Western movie. In the movie, John Wayne as Cutter joins a large criminal gang headed by a former officer that smuggles guns and whiskey to the Comanche Indians to make money and to keep the frontier in a state of violence. Jock, born 5th of August 1943, immigrated to Australia in 1966 from Glasgow. He lived with his family on the Central Coast. He joined the British military at age 17, serving for a few years And while he would tell stories about being in the SAS, the reality was that he spent most of his time building fences and clearing landmines as part of the engineers. This time in the military would influence the way he would run his club in the future, implementing military drills and discipline, which wasn't always appreciated by the members. They would open their first real clubhouse in Granville, in Sydney's western suburbs, a small fibro place in amongst the dirty industrial complexes of the area. However, this would become Jock's castle and power base. In 1980, Skull and Branco, the club's vice president and sergeant in arms respectively, left the club with five others, leaving 13 Comanchero members. It was said that they left the club because Jock had become too militant, wanting to conduct drills and forcing military training on the members. However, over the next three years, the membership would grow to 44 members and a handful of prospects. So let's back up a bit and go through the general hierarchy of a bikey gang. you got the president. He's the leader of the chapter and is the chief spokesman when the club is dealing with media and police. He chairs the club meetings and is the representative of the chapter in the national meetings. Vice President. When the president is away, he takes charge and is heir apparent to the club leadership. His main duty is to see that the club proceedings are conducted satisfactorily. Secretary. All paperwork of the club is the secretary's responsibility. 
He records dates for main events and notes the minutes of the meetings. He also maintains correspondence with the other gangs and keeps the members updated about the latest events. In some clubs, he also keeps a record of the club assets along with the treasurer. You got the treasurer. He's the money man who's in charge of collecting club fees and running the funds and paying the bills too. He also collects debts that the gang owed and checks the business opportunities before getting finalised. Most of the time, the treasurer's and secretary's job is combined. Sergeant at Arms. He is basically the policeman of the gang who enforces law and order in the meetings and is also in charge of the security in the gang meetings. Road Captain. The road captain is in charge of logistics and plans the route of refuelling stops. He leads by riding at the front with the president and the pack behind. He is a non-executive member. Patch Members. These members have earned the right to wear the gang's colours and take part in activities to prove loyalty. Life Members. The long-standing patch members are awarded life membership and though they are expected to take part in club activities, their presence is not compulsory in the meetings. Prospects. They are not patch members yet and are expected to prove their loyalty to the gang. Apart from your club's hierarchy, you have the club's colours. They are the club logo that is displayed on the back of the leather jackets. These are sacred and you don't give them out or give them up lightly. There is also the patch you may see on some outlaw motorcycle clubs, jackets and vests. One percenter. Originally, the term meant that 99% of the people attending motorcycle events were God-fearing and family-oriented. The other 1% were hard-riding, hard-partying, non-Main Street-type people. Some of the early bikers adopted the term and called themselves one percenters. It didn't mean that they were criminals or scumbags. It meant they would ride their bike every day, in any weather, partying hard and raising a little hell. During the 80s, law enforcement corrupted the term to what they wanted it to mean. Criminal and outlaw bikers. So let's get back to Jock and his common chairos. Now Jock was the president but he decided to call himself the Supreme Commander. They now have their first real clubhouse in George Street, Granville. After those guys I mentioned earlier had left, the ranks had built to about 40 members by 1983. At the time, most clubs weren't that big at all, maybe 15 to 30 members. All members would swear allegiance to Jock and the Comancheros Motorcycle Club. When new guys progressed from being prospects or noms to full members, there would be a military-type parade to award the new member his colours. Once a member, you were a member until death. All noms would sign a form pledging their bodies to their brothers. The form stated, I, being a nominee of the Comanchero Motorcycle Club, do hereby, being of sound mind, and under no mental or physical pressure, agree that in the event of my death, regardless of circumstance, the following will be abided by. 1. 
I am to be taken to the Palmdale Crematorium. 2. Transported by sidecar attached to a Harley Davidson motorcycle. 3. The cortege is to be made up of the fellow Comancheros as laid down in Comanchero tradition. 4. I am then to be placed in the Comanchero garden along with my other brothers. Now Jock had a code of laws which was prominently displayed at the club. One of them, Club Rule 4, was any member found guilty of screwing another member's old lady or taking advantage of a rift between them for future conning up will be thrown out. Now I'll get back to this a little later on. The Comancheros had grown in part because of the addition of a bunch of brothers called the Campbells. There was Colin Caesar Campbell, Philip Bull Campbell, Gregory Shadow Campbell, Jeff Snake Campbell, John Wack Campbell, an adopted brother, Mario Chopper Chianta, who changed his name to Mark Campbell at age 18. They were renowned as a formidable fighting crew, and that is what attracted Jock to them. Being brothers, they had a special close bond. They had run their own club called the Gladiators for years, which consisted of around 10 or so members. As they couldn't decide the best way to attract new members, Caesar, the oldest, left the club, and after a while he joined the Comancheros, eventually bringing all the brothers on board. Caesar was not a drinker, preferring lemon squash to alcohol. Jock eventually offered Caesar the sergeant-at-arms position, and Caesar declined, saying that he already had a sergeant-at-arms, Roger, and that he didn't want to cause problems taking his title. Long story short, Caesar agreed to be sergeant-at-arms if Jock made Roger master sergeant, and as Roger liked to party quite a bit, it would suit the club to have the sober Caesar to oversee events as the night went on. At this stage, Jock decided to create a group called the Strike Force that would be his so-called personal bodyguards. Caesar was asked to be the sergeant-at-arms for this group, but refused outright. He didn't like the idea of having a group within a group, so to speak. They were to be one club for all. In fact, Jock often would create issues between members to keep them from bonding together too tightly, which could undermine his authority. So a bit of divide and conquer kept any challenges to his leadership at bay. What Jock had set up the strike force for, in fact, was to go out and cause trouble with other motorbike clubs, to smash them into giving up their colours. Jock was out to try to become the only motorcycle club in Australia. As time went on, Jock had mentioned that he wanted to take out the Rebels and the Gypsy Jokers, plus other smaller clubs. He was becoming aggressive with clubs that hadn't caused any issue with the Comancheros. Okay, if another club had done something to them, then it was okay to go find them and give them a hiding. But to actively go and attack other clubs was not what most of the club wanted. This was starting to cause a rift between members. The clubhouse was starting to get a bit small and it was decided to look for a bigger place. 
They ended up at this house at the end of 150 Louisa Road, Birch Grove. Check it out on Google Street View. It was a large two-storey place at the end of a peninsula into Sydney Harbour, with its backyard running right down to the water and looked straight onto the Harbour Bridge. Now this was quite a conservative neighbourhood and the arrival of a stream of Harleys coming down the street was eye-opening to the residents. Although they could be loud with their parties, they did respect the place and apparently the crime rate fell once they moved in as the petty crims and housebreakers moved on to less risky areas. They had space invader machines, pool tables and even poker machines that were of course illegal. They would have barbecues on the weekend to raise money for the club and all seemed well. Then Chopper and Shadow had seen Jock's truck parked out the front of another member's house. They stopped and went to see what was going on. They looked in the window and saw Jock banging this other member's missus. This was totally against Jock's own rule, club rule number four, that I mentioned earlier. Any member found guilty of screwing another member's old lady or taking advantage of a rift between them for future conning up will be thrown out. So Chopper and Shadow wanted to bring this up at the next meeting and have Jock answer the charge, which meant he could get kicked out of the club he had founded 16 years before. The way they had to go about it was to confront him first before the meeting to get his side of the story, and then it could be brought up at the meeting and decided whether or not to expel him from the club. When the next meeting started, Jock was nowhere to be seen but turned up halfway through, which was too late for the guys to bring up the issue with him. After the meeting, Caesar confronted Jock and called up Shadow and Chopper, who confronted Jock about what they had seen. Jock denied it and was called out as being a liar. As Shadow and Chop were Caesar's brothers, they called out another member called Sheepskin and told him what had happened. Sheepskin looked at Jock and said, You're a stupid fucking old fool. You're gone. You've done your colours. So it was pretty clear that Jock would be thrown out at the next meeting. When the next meeting came around, Jock didn't show. And the same happened at the next meeting. At the fourth meeting, he did show, but late, with his strike force. And announced that he was splitting the club into two chapters. He would move out to a new clubhouse with those that would follow him and the rest could stay here. Jock told the meeting that he would be president of the West chapter and that he wanted Caesar to be president of the city chapter. Jock then told them that there would be one rule in his chapter and that was that he would have the final say in everything and whoever didn't like it could stay here at the city chapter. Anthony Snodgrass Spencer who was a senior member, told him to fuck off and get out of the clubhouse, and for anyone who wanted to follow him, to go now. Jock was visibly shocked when only two guys got up and left with him, as he had expected three quarters of the guys to go with him to the new chapter. The truth is that most of the guys had become bored with the military drills and aggression against other clubs. The existing clubhouse was in a great area close to the city, and they really didn't want to go back out west. Also, 
there have been issues with club's funds that seem to be missing and allegedly taken by Jock to fund his own lifestyle. This had become apparent when one of the members, Leroy, needed to be bailed out of jail, but Jock told the club that there wasn't any money to do it. After all the fundraising they had done, there should have been plenty of money in the kitty. After the meeting, Caesar told Snotty that he could be president, as he preferred to be sergeant-at-arms, where he wouldn't just be a figurehead, but actually be the one that did most of the organising for the club. So now there was a definite split in the club. Jocker split the club to avoid the charges that would have him thrown out. He goes and finds a place at 65 Harris Street, Harris Park, about 20 kilometres west of the city chapter at Birchgrove, or about half an hour's drive. You can see it on Google Street View. Okay, there's Jock and his inner sanctum strike force and a few others, and the new chapter in Birchgrove, which retained most of the members. Jock had retained Philip Leroy Jeske, Robert Foggy Lane, Ian Snow White, Ivan Sparrow Romchek, Robert J.J. Heaney, Tony Dog McCoy, Kavork Kraut Thomasian, and Sheepskin Mick. There was a lot of tension between the chapters. Jock was quite militant and was hell-bent on crushing other clubs and becoming dominant. Snotty and Caesar were quite happy to have gotten rid of the military aspect of the club and they could now go their own direction developing the chapter. They had met with local coppers and agreed they would behave themselves and they even became the unofficial bouncers at the local pubs making sure the locals didn't get rowdy after a few drinks. The neighbours got along with them as well, sometimes having to ask them to turn down the volume of the music that would play at the weekend parties. Soon, Snotty became dissatisfied with being part of the Comancheros. He had earlier gone to the US on behalf of the club, looking for parts for their bikes. Here he met up with the Bandidos Motorcycle Club, he decided to start up an Australian chapter of the Banditos and soon after negotiations with the US chapter, the Banditos Motorcycle Club Australia was born. Snotty called up Jock and advised him of the patchover and in bikey traditions they would have to return the colours, which would be burnt. The club would now use the design of the fat Mexican bandit with a snarl and holding a gun and a knife. Snotty was the president, Caesar was the sergeant in arms, Shadow was the vice president. They had their own set of rules. No heroin allowed in the club. Instant dismissal and a bashing if anyone is caught using it or associating with anyone that uses heroin. Everybody's woman is to be treated with respect, as you would want your own woman to be treated. No woman is allowed in the clubhouse unless her old man is there. This is to stop dissension among members, so nobody roots anybody else's misses. If a fight occurs between members, the offending member is suspended for a period which is worked out by other members at the general meeting. If a member is set upon or becomes involved in a fight with an outsider, any member who does not back up his brother 
will be bashed and thrown out of the club. If a member wants to become involved with another member's missus or girlfriend and the woman's old man agrees, the member and his brother in question may decide if they can go together. If another member's old lady or girlfriend puts it on you, tell her old man and let him deal with her. Otherwise, severe punishment is dealt. The uneasy peace that existed between the chapters was now gone. Eventually, tit-for-tat skirmishes were happening. On one occasion, Jock was forced off the road when riding his bike and crashed. Drive-by shootings were starting to occur by both clubs. Now I need to go over the life of one of the other people that would become involved in the events to come. Her name was Leanne Walters. Born April 1970, the daughter of Pamela and Rex Walters. She'd grown up around Liverpool in Sydney's southwest, and from an early age would jump out of a bedroom window to go out and have some fun. She was a streetwise girl that had plenty of friends and loved the big Harley Davidson motorcycles that would be parked outside the commercial and the railway hotels near the Liverpool railway station. There was a pinball parlour there, so she would often be seen with friends in the area. She would chat to the big tattooed bikers and they would tolerate her constant questions and she eventually got the name Shorty. One such biker, Shifty, a huge mountain of a man that was an office bearer of the Rebels Motorcycle Club, had a soft spot for Leanne and her older sister Cheryl. He had unofficially adopted Cheryl when he noticed her starting to hang around the wrong crowd. So he got her to move in with him his wife and four kids. Leanne kept hassling him to let her stay, but Shifty's house was full, but he always kept an eye out for her. It would be Father's Day, September 1984. Wham had been number one on the Australian Top 40 charts for seven weeks with Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Shifty was on his way to get some sterling silver skull rings made at Bankstown Markets. As he rode along on this fine sunny day, he saw Leanne walking with a skinny junkie-like dude. He pulled up and Leanne asked him where he was going. He told her how he was going to the markets to get some rings made up and then to a swap meet at the Viking Hotel at Milpera. Leanne hassled Shifty if she could go with him. Eventually Shifty agreed on one condition that she would keep watch over his bike while he went to order the skull rings at the market. She jumped on the bike and off they went. At the markets, Shifty disappeared into the crowd and Leanne stood watch over the bike. About an hour later, Shifty returns and off they went to the swap meet at Milpera. At the same moment in time, the banditos were starting to gather and prepare to go to the swap meet as well. They knew there was a chance that the Comancheros would be there. At Jock's place, he was arranging a barbecue for Father's Day, but at short notice, he decided to call the Comancheros together and go to the swap meet as well. The Viking Tavern was situated on 189 Beaconsfield Road, Milpera, in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney. The British Motorcycle Club had organised a swap meet to raise funds for the club. 
It was pretty well advertised, with flyers given out and signs put up in service stations, motorcycle shops, pubs and shopping centres. It would commence at 11am, the pub would open at 12 and stalls were $5 each. There would be live bands, snack bar, pig on a spit, wet t-shirt competition and of course the swap meet. All were welcome, British, Japanese, European and American bikes. Even though it was British Motorcycle Club's first swap meet, there was a healthy crowd that started to wander in. Jock wanted the Comancheros to make a show, go for an hour or so, if the Banditos turned up, there would be a fight. If not, they would go home. They would take bikes and a few cars. Guns would be taken, but unloaded when they were stored in the cars. They would also be armed with baseball bats, iron bars and chains. Walkie-talkies would help maintain communications when they arrived. They travelled in convoy with the thumping sound of half a dozen Harleys reverberating through the streets. The plan would be that Jock would approach them at the centre, while his men would attack from either side in a classic pincer movement. At 1.15pm, the 19 Comancheros arrived at the Viking Tavern. They parked the cars and bikes. A few of the people in the meet noticed the Comancheros were holding baseball bats and had guns strapped to their bikes. The publican Mike Langley approached the bikers and when Jock walked over he told him he didn't want any violence to put the weapons away and that it was a family day. Jock with machete strapped to his hip told him that there would be no problem unless the banditos turned up then turned and walked away. As there were no banditos there at the time the Comancheros started to drift apart. Jock went off to get a beer Others were wandering around the car park. Foggy was stationed in his car at the entrance to the car park, keeping watch with a walkie-talkie. Jock and JJ then wandered around the back of the tavern. The tension had eased as Jock thought the banditos wouldn't show. Around this time, the banditos were already on their way to the Viking. They had loaded up their bikes and cars with the same types of weapons they expected the Comancheros to bring. Knives, guns, baseball bats, iron bars and chains. There would be 34 banditos to 19 Comancheros. At around 1.45pm, the banditos arrived. This had caught the Comancheros off guard and Jock was still around the back of the tavern. Snow who was at the front of the car park, whispered into his walkie-talkie to Foggy, who had left his post to go and get a beer, that the banditos were here. Foggy had forgotten to turn his walkie-talkie on, so he didn't get the message. Their battle plan of a pincer movement couldn't be deployed, and the guys that were left in the car park sprang up and prepared themselves. The Comancheros had their guns out already, and when the banditos saw them, they in turn reached for their guns. Mike Langley, the hotel publican, heard the second lot of bikes arrive and walked out to the car park to see both groups start to posture themselves for battle. He yelled at them to calm down and put the weapons away and he rushed back to the bar to find Leroy, the sergeant at arms for the Comancheros, to hopefully see if he could calm things down. 
but Leroy was already on his way to the front line, holding his 12-gauge shotgun across his 230-pound body. Leroy pointed the shotgun in the air. People were shouting, Put the gun down. Let's fight like men. Then there were all these guys trying to grab the shotgun from Leroy when it went off. Then all hell broke loose. Bats, iron bars and the butts of shotguns and rifles were being wielded between Comanchero and Bandito. More shots rang out. People in the car park at the swap meet panicked, scattering in all directions. Parents grabbed their kids and ran for cover. Caesar, going to the aid of his brother Snake, that had been hit by a shotgun blast to the stomach, also got hit by another blast. Whack Campbell was blasted through the right arm and chest as he tried to get out of the car he was in. One girl, Linda Motten, who had come to the swap meet with a boyfriend, had the windscreen of her car blasted out and she jumped out and took cover behind it. Quick thinking, she had her camera with her and outraged by the gunfire, she decided to take photos of the events going on around her. Back then, you took photos on film that was either 12, 24 or 36 frames. She chose her moments and seven of her photos would provide crucial evidence as to what happened that day. Shadow Campbell was the next to be hit, copping a shotgun blast to the throat, stumbling a few steps until he fell clutching his throat with blood oozing through his fingers. Sparrow then took a hit to his right shoulder and chest at such close range he died instantly with the cartridge wadding embedding itself in his ear. The next to die would be Foggy. Chopper Campbell lined him up with a .357 Magnum Rossi rifle. The shot would enter his guts and cut the arteries to his heart. Chopper then saw Leroy crouched over, looking away from him. Chopper aimed and fired. The bullet entering his back and passed straight through his heart, killing him instantly. Chopper then took aim at Sunshine. Remember that girl Leanne I told you about before? Well, as the fighting had erupted, she'd been standing around with Shifty, buying raffle tickets. She saw Chopper's gun point in their general direction and push Shifty out of the way. As she did, Chopper fired at Sunshine. However, it missed and struck Leanne on the chin, ripping open her face and propelling her backwards. She was dead. Sunshine then took cover and was able to get a shot at Chopper. He fired off two blasts, peppering him with pellets. Several went through him and several went through his heart. He fell flat in his face, dead as a doornail, having just killed three people. Barely five minutes had passed since the violence had erupted. Jock, who had been caught unready at the back of the tavern, now made his move up the centre of the battle. He had his machete raised high as he was cut down by two shotgun blasts to his head and chest. Shotgun pellets entered his brain and smashed out a few of his teeth. He would ultimately survive his wounds. The last to die would be Dog, who was caught in the open going to the aid of his comrade. He copped two shots to the head and chest and was dead before he hit the ground. Police and ambulance crews started to arrive. There were bodies lying everywhere. 
onlookers had started to gather as the shooting had stopped. Both sides were still armed with guns at this stage, which prevented the ambulance crews to get to the injured. Eventually both sides gave up their weapons and a sort of uneasy calm came over the place. Paramedics treated the wounded and police were able to gather each respective club members to different areas. Most stayed at the scene rather than running off. Eventually, over 200 police had arrived at the scene. In the end, four Comancheros died from shotgun wounds, two Banditos and Liam Walters died after being shot with a Rossi .357 Magnum rifle. A further 28 people were wounded, with 20 requiring hospitalisation. Once the police investigation had completed, 43 people were originally charged with seven counts of murder under the doctrine of common purpose. Charges would be dropped against 10 of the bikies before trial and Bernard Bernie Podgorski, secretary of the Banditos, was granted immunity after turning Queen's evidence. Anthony Snoddy Spencer, the Banditos national president, hanged himself in prison before he could stand trial. It would become the longest joint trial in New South Wales history, with 58 policemen and members of the Tactical Operation Unit providing security at the specially built courtroom. Witnesses required armed guards from the Witness Security Unit. Over 1,000 potential jurors were presented before 12 were finally accepted. More than two years later, on the 12th of June 1987, the jury delivered 63 murder convictions, 147 manslaughter convictions and 31 of a fray. The judge in the case named the instigator of the violence as William Jock Ross, the supreme commander of the Comancheros saying Ross was primarily responsible for the decision that members of his club go to Milpera in force and armed. Eight other members of the Comancheros gang received life sentences and 16 banditos received sentences of seven years for manslaughter. Interestingly, as the banditos arrested were charged in regards to all of the deaths, this resulted in one being found guilty of the manslaughter of his own brother. Commonwealth Games gold medalist boxer Philip McElwain was the only motorcycle club member to be acquitted at trial of the manslaughter and murder charges that were brought against him. In 1989, nine gang members successfully appealed their murder convictions with the charge quashed and reduced to manslaughter. In 1992, Ross was the last to be released after serving five years and three months. There would be changes to gun laws after this. The New South Wales Firearms and Dangerous Weapons Act 1973, which allowed registered owners the right to carry firearms in public, was subsequently amended to require a good reason for the issue of a firearm licence. Being in a motorcycle club wasn't a good enough reason. Linda Motton, who had a windscreen shot at during the fight, was the only one who had photographic evidence of the day. Seven well-timed photos showed the accused with guns in their hands. This would prove crucial during the trial. 
she had to go into hiding after numerous death threats over the years and only recently gave an interview about the day's happenings on TV. Rex Walters still visits the gravesite of his daughter Leanne. He still has the clothes she wore that day and the Father's Day gift that Leanne was never able to give him. Dad spelled out in 3D glass with a photo of them together behind it. So what do you say to this? There was no real justice over the death of Leanne. If the club members had kept their guns at home, they would still have had a hell of a fight, but probably without any fatalities. For further insight into how this all happened, there are a couple of books I recommend. Brothers in Arms by Lindsay Simpson and Sandra Harvey. Another one is Enforcer by Caesar Campbell, one of the banditos. I will have a few photos up on my Instagram site, but you can always go to Google and search for Milpera Massacre, which will return some pretty gruesome images. So, that's all for this episode of True Crime Island. As usual, you can find me on all the major podcast platforms, iTunes, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. All the links are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes, not just a star rating, for a chance to win a True Crime Island Slasher t-shirt. This episode's winner, picked out by the lovely Katie, is Tony Q. Send me an email with your details and I will send you a t-shirt. Cambo at truecrimeisland.com I don't have many reviews, so there's a good chance of getting one. The only size, though, is large. Another thing, if you have Facebook, search for Podcasts We Listen To. Here you can chat with creators and listeners. They have also announced PodCon 2018, which will be held at New Orleans, Louisiana. They have a Twitter at PodCon 2018 for more info. Thanks to all my listeners. I appreciate all your kind words and support. Well, don't forget to delete your browser history. This is your host, Cambo, and this has been True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. <laughs>